Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Pink Sheets Farmer Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith, senior editor Brenda Sandberg, and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today is October 29th, 2021, and we hope you're ready for some trick-or-treating. But while you prepare for the endless string of children knocking on your door to demand candy, consider some of the FDA-related news that emerged this week. First up is the pending authorization of the Pfizer and BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine for children aged 5 to 11. The FDA's Vaccine and Related Biological Products Advisory Committee voted overwhelmingly in favor of granting an emergency youth authorization in the age group. But Sarah, you heard a lot of concern during that meeting as well. Right. It was it was pretty interesting because, um, you know, I think at one point, actually, the um, acting chair of the committee was sort of worried potentially maybe that the vote um, wasn't even going to pass and perhaps they needed to like adjust the vote um, (laughs) before to make, you know, to deal with um, some people's concerns that um, basically um, the issue here is that while many people seem to feel like there are many children within the five to 11 year old um, range who should get access to COVID-19 vaccines and the benefit for them likely outweigh the risks. I think they seemed a bit concerned as to whether that was true for everybody within that age range. And, you know, um, there were also some people that were particularly concerned that this could lead to mandates, um, like school mandates for vaccination too quickly, and they didn't want to be maybe indirectly endorsing that. Um, ultimately, what happened was the committee actually voted 17 to zero with one abstention. So, it, I mean, the the vote looks pretty resoundingly positive. Like I said, I, I would say about at least half of those yes votes, though, had some reservations maybe um, for some populations, whether people might want to think a little bit more or talk to their individual doctor about their um, case. I mean, some of the some of the reasons for I guess concern is that um, it seems like a number of children have been, CDC estimates maybe about 40% have already been exposed and had COVID. Um, And I think some people were wondering whether those children really need multiple shots or even one shot given the myocarditis risk, if they might be sufficiently protected. So I think that was the biggest um, factor there. And the other question is kind of what is the trajectory of this pandemic look like because FDA did a number of different models and if COVID sort of dies down quite a bit there's some concern that there'd be sort of excess hospitalizations due to myocarditis um, compared to the hospitalizations prevented by the vaccine. Of course FDA has argued that um, there's other benefits to children of getting the vaccine besides just being hospitalized. So um, it it was a bit complicated, but ultimately, um, you know, the committee pushed it forward, and I think most people expect FDA to do so as well. Um, the question in my mind is whether CDC's advisory committee looks at this and feels sort of similarly to some of the people that were a little on the edge at FDA and th- and feels like they should sort of recommend the vaccine for certain populations and not for others within this age range, or whether they should say certain population they can say like this group of kids should definitely get it. And they can say others may be able to get it based on kind of, again, like this idea of like individual risk benefit decision-making with their doctors. So I think that's kind of the next thing to look for here. 
Yeah, we, we should note that at the, at the time of this recording, which is in the morning, the FDA hasn't granted the EUA just yet, but we're expecting it any time now, hopefully before like eight o'clock at night when all of us want to <laughs> just go home for the weekend. Um, <laughs> and then in addition, the, the CDC's um, Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices is going to determine who actually will get the vaccine theoretically during the during a meeting that's scheduled for November 2nd. Um, and, but Sarah, I wanted to go back to one of the things you mentioned was that I thought was interesting with this meeting too, was that there were a lot of members who were really concerned about kind of the implication of their vote on this. And, you know, with when they're talking about like whether or not this will lead school districts or states or whatever to, to like mandate vaccination for children to go to school. I mean, do, do you foresee that happening? I don't, th I'm not sure we've actually seen that yet with some of these other ones. Right. I mean, Peter Marks addressed this a bit at the meeting and basically said um, that for the most part so far, we haven't seen mandates for COVID vaccines come until um, after there's a BLA, so a full approval. So if you think about the timeline for for adults, most, you know, the vaccines were approved towards the end of um or started being um, authorized, I guess, towards the end of last year. And it really wasn't until, um, you know, a few months ago now that we started hearing more about mandates. And that was after Pfizer's shot um, got a BLA. Of course, I think the mandates for adults, um, right, I guess, sort of incorporate the other vaccines to some degree. Um, so I'm not sure quite how to think about that. But I know like the most prominent place um, that has been looking at school mandates for children in, is California that I'm aware of. And they've been pretty clear it would only be after there was a full FDA approval. I think I was reading a story. Some, you know, individual school districts in that state seem like they want to do mandates sooner, but it's not clear whether they actually have the legal authority to do so. Um, so I, I, I think there may be some legitimate concerns that this pushes some places to try and do it mandates um, faster than some of the committee members would like. I'm not sure if they'll actually have the the legal ability to do it now. And I think what the committee members were sort of concerned about is, you know, this is a still an emergency use authorization. The safety database in children of this um, age is is small, um, you know, relatively, um, and it may take some time for us to get a true sense of the myocarditis risks in particular, which I think many believe might actually be more favorable than FDA at this point is sort of estimating because they've been very conservative and basing it on rates in older people and with higher doses of the vaccine. But I think they just felt like before we do mandates, um, we just need to have a little bit more data. It's interesting to watch the uh, evolution of the advisory committee's uh, opinion on these things. You know, now, you know, almost a year ago, sort of the first vote on uh, the Pfizer EUA for uh, um, for adults was a, was a split vote that they uh, it was certainly not unanimous. Uh, um, there were some uh, um, some votes against it, and, and and I don't think there's any sort of more definitive. Uh, data for an EUA with uh, the five to eleven year olds, and yet they did get the unanimous uh, vote. And you know, perhaps a uh, uh, all these many months of uh, use in adults and through kind of the uh, the more real world data we've generated to kind of give them more confidence. But it's just sort of kind of an interesting uh, um, exercise in looking at sort of kind of how the uh, um, the 
the the the vote ratio seems to improve with almost every uh, um, every uh, vaccine that uh, goes before the uh, the community gets a uh, a stronger endorsement. Even as you're saying, uh, Sarah, that there's lots of uh, um, concern being voiced, but if you just look at the numbers, it's uh, um, you know it's, it's it's getting better. Yeah, I've been interested to see because like um, like Twitter especially, there's a lot of very like prominent physicians and pediatricians out there kind of and <laughs> everybody seems very like gung-ho and ready to give this vaccine and saying they're ready to give it to their children just like they'll recommend it to their patients so I'm actually sort of interested to see if like there's something unique about <laughs> some of the concerns of the advisory committee and most don't feel that way because I feel like in other forums people people don't seem as concerned as some of the FDA advisors um, well, I have, so maybe they were a bit on the more conservative side of things. I strongly suspect we'll see a uh, lower inoculation rate in the 5 to 11-year-olds than we've seen in the uh, 12 to uh, 15, which is itself lower than the adult population. So, uh, um, you know, despite sort of kind of the, the Twitter buzz, I think sort of kind of uh, the the overall uh, adoption uh, um, uh, in the U.S. will will likely be uh, be on the low side of uh, of, uh, of is a good yeah. point that there's kind of a I think there's a you know there's a a subset of people that are kind of extremely frustrated with the pandemic and just sort of kind of want it to be uh, over you know sort of with a uh, um, uh, magical uh, uh, shot if you will that's sort of kind of obviously not what the uh, the shot is but uh, um, uh, you know, and there sort of certainly uh, uh, remains a population that uh, you know feels the uh, the pandemic isn't that serious to, to begin with. So, uh, um, uh, how that shakes out will be uh, um, will be interesting. Yeah, there's already been polling that um, I think that people have been talking about where it was something like even parents who were parents who were like really you know enthusiastic about getting themselves vaccinated weren't were still kind of hesitant to get their children vaccinated you know, they're young children, they're, you know, so it, it'll be interesting to see how quickly people are running to pharmacies and their pediatricians offices to kind of get this done, assuming, assuming the, you know, the FDA finishes this up um, going forward. Um, there also were, you know, as we're talking about, like, you know, questions that were being asked, there were, there were a lot of questions that were asked that just flat out weren't answered. <laughs> Um, in, including, um, yeah, one of the things that was asked was, you know, are there at risk groups of children in this, in the five to 11 year old age group that, you know, are in particular need of vaccination? They really, no one really could give them an, you know, identify anyone, um, that would fit that description. I mean, were there, were there any kind of the unknowns out there that, that, that stuck out to you? Um, I mean, the biggest thing I think for me was the, this question of like, what is the role of, um, transmission um, in terms of preventing transmission from vaccination. Um, and it's been sort of a question of how much an adult as well. And, you know, I think there were definitely some committee members that would have felt more comfortable, rec you know, really going all in on vaccinating children if we had a better sense of how um, transmission factored in. And I know there were a few committee members that felt like Pfizer had a, 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 a big amount of um, you know, sort of samples and so forth from their trial where they might have been able to figure that out fairly easily. I guess the other the other thing that um, I think some advisors would have liked and nobody's really made a lot of efforts to do so far is thinking about like 
I mean, they have lowered the dose um, to try and, you know, balance the risk benefits for younger children. But the question about whether, you know, figuring out maybe do people who have had prior COVID only need one shot? Should we be spacing out the shots more for safety purposes? I think if they were able to kind of experiment with any of that and get some data that might have led to some more comfort. Of course, I think some of the replies to those questions have kind of been like, we're still in a pandemic emergency situation, trying to do this as fast as possible. And we probably will eventually try and like flesh out whether there is like a, you know, a more ideal kind of dosing scheme and so forth. But I think the companies and even maybe FDA just feel like this isn't the time to do that yet. Yeah, unfortunately, everybody wants the every answer instantaneously or overnight and it doesn't work that way right. i mean I, I mean they were even asking questions i know you know we're, we're not even to the primary series yet and there were questions being asked like whether these kids are going to need a booster in six months and the company you know kind of say well we expect efficacy to be kind of the same as with the older children but we don't really know and you know it's going to de- i mean something like that could really affect the kind of the, the decisions that the the cdc will make in terms of deploying this but you know, I mean, in terms of judging, you know, the whether or not immunity in kids wanes, you know, when you're still kind of, you know, going through the original initial trial to, you know, to show that it was efficacious is, you know, going to be difficult. Right. And I, I mean, I think we, we've talked about this before. You're, uh, these advisors are very, you know, the into the science and drug development and like love to get as much detailed information as they possibly can. And I, I think there's sometimes, I'm not sure we should always expect the companies, you know, or FDA to have all the answers yet. And, you know, um, I, I think, um, again, on the internet, I think people who are anti-vaccine were taking some of the responses of, well, we don't have this answer, or we don't quite have that answer, or enough data mm-hmm. for this yet, as kind of signals like, wait, stop, why are you approving this yet? And I think you have to really take a step back because I don't think all of those questions were red flags or, you know, signs that this isn't ready for an authorization yet. It's just, um, I think, as as Paul Offit um, said in the meeting at the end, and he said this to me before, you know, it's we're never going to know everything we want to know. Usually in drug development and vaccine development, the question is kind of when do you know enough um, but I, I think for people who aren't used to following m- medicine to this degree, um, they probably don't often think about like this, some of the like uncertainties we normally accept. Well, yeah, and, and- I mean, FDA will give uh, full approval to a, uh, a drug, even if the, uh, as they say, the mechanism of action is not, uh, you know, fully understood, even if it uh, shows that it works, that uh, it works. And, you know, obviously this is a slightly, slightly different case with the, uh, EUA as opposed to a full approval, but it's a, uh, um, it is a, uh, um, it is I think as you if you've uh, written Sarah this for kind of this this introduction to the vagaries of uh, um, uh, uh, drug research for uh, for a larger swath of the uh, the population, and uh, um, it can be a little unsettling to sort of think that there's so much sort of kind of uh, um, you know uncertainty if you sort of kind of can't sort of kind of get every single question answered with uh, with the available data. Well, and, and as we saw with the vaccine in adults, I mean, you really didn't learn. We didn't learn about some of the adverse events until after they started giving it to people. I mean, outside of the clinical trial, I mean, there, some things popped up right away and the, there's they weren't detected in the trial, even though the trial had thousands and thousands of participants in it. So, I mean, 
Yeah, as scary and, you know, as Matt, you said, as unsettling as that sounds, I mean, you know, as one of the advisory committee members put it, I mean, you know, we're going to we're going to learn we're not going to learn some things until we start giving it. So, you know, that's I know that, you know, that doesn't sit well with people, but sometimes it's just the you know, that's the way they have to do things. Uh, One other thing I wanted to mention that and this could actually I'm curious if the if the CDC ends up looking at this before the meeting is that they there was a mention that there were. They think there were 125,000 children who got the Pfizer shot, even though they were younger than 12. And you know, they say and the committee was asking the um, the FDA committee was asking if they had any the safety data on that, and whether or not they were following those people. And they said no, we hadn't looked at it yet. And they thought maybe some of it was erroneous. But you wonder if if all of a sudden that that data will be made available to the CDC committee next week. Yeah, that would definitely be interesting. Again, I think there seemed to be some sense that like if people were sort of trying to get their children um, who weren't quite 12 a vaccine, <laughs> yeah. they might have not been um, transparent about the age. So there were questions about how how much of how much of that data was, like you said, um, truly younger children, you know, getting the vaccine before 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 that. But yeah, no, that would certainly be I mean, that's a large population to look at. Yeah, but it would other, also be a higher dose. So. That, and and that's going to be that's going to be a big question too. That's already been I've already heard asked is if your if your kid is eleven years, eleven months, and fifteen days old, do you wait fifteen days and get the full dose when they're twelve, or do you go get them vaccinated now with the third one third dose? And you know, and someone's going to have to make a, a decision, a recommendation on that, whether it's a physicians or FDA or CDC or whoever. And, you know, I, I don't, you know, that's, that could just be a complete judgment call. I mean, no one really knows the answer to that, I don't think. Next, we're going to discuss Merck's decision to license its pending oral COVID-19 treatment to other manufacturers to increase access. Brenda, you worked on this story for us. What happened here? Well, Merck decided to license um, its Molnupur- Molnupiravir to the medicines patent pool, and um, it's a, it's really significant because of the 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 terms of this deal. Um, it it allows um, allows a medicines patent pool to sublicense of the drug to many manufacturers, so it can be manufactured anywhere in the world. And it's the first license that's transparent; it's public, and so everyone can see the terms of it. Um, that's been a uh, a, a major source of criticism that all these negotiations are, are, are you know, secret and nobody really knows the terms. And this is right out there; it's public. Um, and as um, and, and the critics, the people really uh, push for access to medicines so, that are so well known, like Jamie Love of KEI, especially. He said this was a roadmap for scaling up vaccines and therapeutics. Um, and given all the controversy, the fight, the battle over um, access to patents and other intellectual property from COVID products, this is seen as like a step forward. Um, there, there is criticism of it because it leaves out many middle-income countries, um, particularly large parts of Latin America. Um, and in fact, eight, only 18% of Latin America and, the, and Caribbean are covered by this. And another feature of it that um, so it covers 105 low and middle income countries. Uh, another feature of it um, is that Merck and its partner Ridgeback Biotherapeutics and Emory, they're not receiving any royalties for sales 
on the drug um, as long as the COVID-19 is classified as a, uh, a public health emergency by the WHO. Um, and it, 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 it's kind of um, uh, an indication of a shift, even though most companies are not in, are still fighting any um, push for a, a waiver of their IP. Um, the the executive director of the medicines patent pool, um, our, our sibling publication in vivo interviewed him uh, a, a couple months ago, and he said that he's seen a a, a perspective among some CEOs shift. Um, whereas in the past they thought about market access. Um, as an afterthought, after a product was um, authorized, there he's seeing that they're thinking about it more. And he and he he was quoted in um, the joint press release that came out as as um, hoping that this deal with Merck will will be a strong encouragement to others. And 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 it seems like it could be, and that it it would be a model for how to go forward uh, as people push for you know some some revisions to it and it, to be more inclusive of other countries. Another aspect that got criticized, criticized by um, the Medicines Patent Pool um, ex Advisory Committee, their expert advisory group, there was a provision in, in, the, um, in the agreement that allows for Merck to terminate, terminate the deal if um, the Medicines Patent Pool challenges any patents or supports others who challenge patents. And it's sort of a non-issue because the medicine patent pool said they're not going to do that. So there's not going to be termination because of this. Um, but the but the expert advisory group wants wants there to be discussion to delete that provision from from the deal. Brenda, it is interesting that uh, um, you know on the one hand there's this uh, very generous uh, um, uh, you know a zero royalty uh, um, Factor, but on the other hand, there's this, this more um, restrictive uh, uh, patent challenge language. And uh, do you think that's uh, um, those two things just were kind of part of the same uh, trade-off, or sort of kind of what's uh, um, what's your sense of kind of why uh, Merck and uh, um, uh, Ridgeback struck this kind of deal, as and uh, others uh, perhaps have not uh, done this kind of thing? Well, the difference is that this is a negotiation between um, a, a company and a public health entity, and the push for the IP waiver is uh, it would be a compulsory license. And I think part of it is, um, uh, you know, Merck is in this deal. They're sharing their know-how, and that's been a sticking point for a lot of manufacturers. They 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 haven't wanted. They didn't. They haven't wanted to do that. They would, um, and and that's why they're they're against this broad, you know, availability of the, of their intellectual property. So I don't know if this will impact the the struggle over the IP waiver. I asked about that, and you know, um, and 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 people pointing out, well, it's a, a different thing, but it it is it is encouraging that this happened, and it and it could be seen as a step forward. Like if people don't want it, if they're against the IP waiver, then they could negotiate a deal and, you know, and get, and get around that. This could be theoretically a, something that could be, that could be done for the, for the COVID vaccines too. If, you know, if everyone agreed to do that and that obviously hasn't happened yet, but 
this is something, I mean, this is a model that could be used for the vaccines if they wanted to? Yeah, I think so. Um, I, this is the first uh, license that uh, the medicine patent pool has had for any COVID product. And they've had license, they're very well known for their licensing for um, HIV drugs and hepatitis drugs. This is the first one for um, COVID products and 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 um, it, it it remains to be seen whether the vaccine manufacturers might come up and uh, work out a similar um, a similar deal with with the medicines patent pool. Um, I don't know if it if it's different in terms of like they they've um, they have many of them have licensing agreements uh, with with um, with generic manufacturers and others around the world. Um, Merck also had before it reached this agreement. There were I think there were five. Um, generic firms in India that they had um, a licensing arrangements with. I guess the question for the vaccines is it seems like um, what people have been saying is companies would need or countries and you know manufacturing facilities would need more assistance with like the technology transfer perhaps with the vaccines than they would for kind of a small molecule antiviral which they, they might be a bit more familiar with how to kind of manufacture it themselves. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, making a pill is definitely easier than making a vaccine, I think, in a lot of in a lot of ways. But this is a, you know, another example of pandemic inspired sharing and cooperation. You know, we'll have to see if, uh, you know, this takes root after the, you know, after the emergency is over. It'll be it'll be interesting to watch if, if you know, if the agreement uh, blossoms into, you know, greater things. Yeah, um, the, the the New York Times and uh, their article about this, um, they interviewed um um, Charles Gore, the executive director of um, Medicines Patent Pool, and he noted that um, that that Pfizer that, that is in negotiations with them they, for their antiviral pill that's in um, in development. Finally, today we're going to look at an interesting case involving what could be termed the downside of accelerated approval from the FDA. Agendis announced recently that it withdrew its BLA for the PD-1 inhibitor balstilimab for second-line cervical cancer. The company was hoping that the FDA would take the full six months available to convert Merck's Keytruda from accelerated to full approval for the same indication. And Agendis had received a priority review for its product with a December user fee goal, but the FDA needed only two months to complete its review of the Keytruda application, announcing the decision on October 13th, well ahead of the February goal date. The change meant the therapy was now considered available and that Agendis' product would have to now show a meaningful advantage over Keytruda. With that decision, the agency decided it was no longer appropriate to consider the Agendis application for accelerated approval and it suggested it be withdrawn. So a number of lessons for sponsors were noted here. Did any, any of these stick out to you all? I guess one of the main ones was don't expect that a FDA user fee date is as solid as you think, particularly in cancer accelerated approvals where they've been working much faster than, um, you know, previously um, we've seen the agency do, you know, it's, it's not uncommon now, I feel like, to see a drug get cleared in two or three months. And this company seemed to be relying on it taking much longer and that helping their application be viable. Yeah, the uh, the story that uh, uh, Sue and uh, uh, Bridget uh, uh, did for us, uh, Sue Sutter and Bridget uh, Silverman, uh, had a nice uh, uh, scatter plot uh, graph looking at uh, um, 
approvals, uh, supplemental uh, oncology approvals over the last uh, two years. And, uh, you know, this, this Keytruda um, approval certainly was among the fastest, but not, uh, um, you know, not the fastest by, uh, by any means. So uh, um, it wasn't unprecedented for FDA to take this, uh, this little time to get it done. And, uh, you know, planning on uh, um, FDA, uh, um, you know, being slower than it's been in the past is probably not a good regulatory uh, um, strategy if you're hoping to uh, um, rely on that. So it's just uh, um, one of these unfortunate things that's sort of kind of that, uh, um, you know, they, they got uh, they got caught by it. And, uh, you know, among the other things that the, the story uh, found was that uh, uh, Keytruda itself had uh, um, uh, gotten caught in this uh, um, before. It was one of the, uh, <laughs> yeah, that was the previous applications that sort of kind of had to, uh, um, was not able to get accelerated approval because it was, uh, um, um, the, the thing that, uh, um, there was no longer, uh, um, you know, the, the, another, uh, therapy had become, uh, um, uh, fully approved, uh, while it was, uh, while it was pending. Yeah. It's a, you know, it, you know, it's, it's easy to second guess regulatory due diligence after the fact when you've, when you've seen this happen, but, um, yeah, it, it's, I'm, I'm sure it's difficult to, and I think the story pointed this out too, is that predicting the length of time that these things will take and the competitors will be, Kind of where they're at in the review process, where they're going, how long it's going to take them to get through um, a lot of these, uh, you know, these these hoops is is still very difficult. But uh, but yeah, you know, this is a this is something that maybe you know, obviously it's a setback for agendas, but at least you know maybe some others will be able to kind of uh, you know benefit from their experience, uh, you know, with, with this, and maybe you know there's some lessons learned for for everybody. Well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this in previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to the Pink Sheet Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith, Brenda Sandberg, and Matt Hobbs. Stay safe, get vaccinated, and we'll see you next time. 